Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNote, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. My name is Elliot Zagman, and with me is my co-host, who has caused great concern with his four-legged、uh, housemate after Sandy, his golden retriever, lured plans. That as he is welcoming in the year of the pig and saying goodbye to the year of the dog, he will be trading in Sandy for a pot-bellied swine.、Uh, so it's Mike is my co-host James Hull. I will definitely not be trading in Sandy.、Uh, no way, not happening. <laughs>、um, okay, so、uh, we are powered by TechNode and. You should sign up for their newsletters while you're listening to this, or any time, or right now. How about that? Go to technode.com/newsletters, and just to get the, I'll do the disclaimer here. Nothing said on this podcast should be construed as investment advice or a solicitation of services. Even our numbers may be incorrect or off. Investing is risky. Speak with your financial advisor and do your own research before making investment decisions. So、uh, James, do you have plans for the Chinese New Year? I do. I'm going to be、um, with the in-laws、uh, for a bit, and then off to the beach. Cool. You and I, we we first went to China around the same time. You were oh seven. I was oh eight. Right. Yep. I was oh seven. Near the end of oh seven. Were you in Beijing? Were you in Beijing then?、Uh, Shanghai, actually. I don't know if if Shanghai was like this, but I remember. Being my first spring festival in China was 2009, and、uh, back then it was just、um, it was it was lawlessness when it came to the fireworks. I don't know if Shanghai. Oh, was totally. Like this, it was it was chaos. You couldn't go. I mean, if you if you were walking down the road, there was always some mistakes, and like you could just be have like there would suddenly be fireworks like tip over. And they're just shooting straight into the road or straight into the traffic, and it's just—I mean, it was just—and all the smoke from the fireworks. It looked like it really—it was like a war zone.、Um, I, it was crazy. I, I, I think we should be careful, you know, because obviously it was not like a real no, war no, no, zone. No, no, no.、Um, and I don't but, know what、um, a real war zone. So、like. exactly, exactly. We are we are fortunate enough not to know what that is like,、um, but. That was the common comparison. It was, it's, it was, it was. I mean, it was, it was so much fun. I mean, to be in your early twenties or your mid twenties, to it, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun, right? So you, you go and you know you have a bunch of drinks with your friends and you, you go to the roof of your building and let off a bunch of fireworks and everyone else is letting off fireworks,、um, and it is just chaos. But yeah, it's, it's also, it was also really dangerous, and there's a reason why they clamped down on everything.、Um, that. I was in Beijing when that hotel next to the CCTV tower lit on fire. Oh yeah, do you remember this?、Um, yeah, it's still there. I mean, it, I mean, it, they haven't used it for anything. It's just been sitting there. That building kind of burned. I think they've been they've been reconstructing it. I, I, I don't remember. I, there is、Someone、a plan. Can, it, it's probably going to come back online, but I think it, it's literally been there, just sitting there. But after that, they they banned.、Uh, you're not supposed to have fireworks inside of I think third ring. Or fourth ring,、uh, or fifth ring, and now it's like they're just straight up banned all around the country. But people still do it. Yeah. Well, even even just you know five years ago, there was there was still a lot of them,、um, and it was still pretty chaotic. But I mean, I, I lived within the third ring road,、um, 
and it was, you know, the you could still see him going off everywhere. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. Um, I mean, these are these are for, yeah, those, for the American the listeners. Over. I mean, these are fireworks that you cannot typically buy. Like, like they're just set. They set up these shops all on like street corners all around the city, and you can go buy these massive like the mortar shells that launch up and make huge explosions. I mean, they're beautiful, amazing fireworks. Um, and people buy those, and they literally put them right on the ground next to buildings. And so you can be up on, you know, the 18th floor, 20th floor, and like there'll be fireworks going off right outside your window. And like the stuff could be hitting your window. Like it's like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. And there was, I mean, and it was just accepted. Like it just, it's, I mean, it would, it would be hard to sleep every night for, for basically oh, totally. two weeks. Um, All night but, long. And for those who who haven't experienced that, um, imagine being in New York City um, and having anyone being able to access uh, basically the kind of fireworks that you'd see at your 4th of July fireworks display, some of them, and just going over to any street corner in the city and just lighting them off. And that happening all over the city. So, um, yeah, uh, a lot of fun, a lot of danger. Uh, you know, you'd hear you'd hear reports of you know hundreds and hundreds of people who had you know their you had you know were were terribly injured and things like that. It's you know there's reasons why it was uh, it has been stopped, but uh, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and it's uh, one of those things where it's it's you know only in that place at a certain point in history do you get experience that, and it's uh, a, a memorable experience that's for sure. But anyways, uh, we had a lot to talk about today. Uh, we have B- Bernard Leong uh, from the Analyze Asia podcast joining us to talk about uh, Chinese e-commerce firms in Southeast Asia. We're going we're gonna to go over Alibaba's earnings calls, but first uh, we're going to go over a few other companies on the watch list. Uh, we have ITE hitting um, yet more regulatory uh, hurdles. Um and it, it impacts their uh, their crying princess show, right? The the Yenshi Palace, uh, their 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 show about the 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 palace intrigue. Um, so tell us more about that, James. Yeah. Okay. So the the palace dramas, crying princess shows, they're basically no longer allowed to show these on broadcast television. I think that's what it was saying. Um, and actually, there's another, and I forget the name of it. You know, but there was another show that was being shown on another one of these palace dramas that was being shown on a TV station, and they actually had to stop the the broadcast. Um, it hadn't finished, you know, the whole season. They had to stop and change to another one. So basically, they said, um, you know, what's what's the impact? You know, right? How is this going to impact IGE? How's it going to impact? So when IGE makes a show, they uh, obviously invest money in it. And they expect, uh, I, I would think they expect to be able to take some of the, they could take that content and license it out to, you know, broadcast TV in China, to maybe broadcast TV outside of China. Maybe they can license it to Southeast Asia. Uh, maybe they can license it to other online streaming app uh, uh, apps. So their produced content on their balance sheet uh, as of September 30th, 2018, was 4 billion RMB. I don't know how much of that is Yanshi Palace, but, um, and how much of their kind of valuation of that content, um, 
would be impacted by not being able to show it on TV, but I think it would be a negative impact. Uh, so maybe they will have to kind of impair this this asset a little bit uh, yeah, because of this news. We've talked about this on the podcast. Uh, it seems like every week we talk about it in one industry, whether it's gaming, whether it's short video, whether it's uh, whatever it is, there always seems to be a, a new regulation kind of coming out of nowhere, or that seems to come out of nowhere, that negatively impact these 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 companies and make it very hard for I think for them to plan, right? So what? How how would they be able to anticipate whether or not? First of all, why why would they ban a, a show like this being on TV? They gave a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of them is that you know the show um, kind of promotes uh, you know this kind of historical um, higher luxury life. You know, like multi classes. You know, like having kind of living this like palace. You know, higher strata of society kind of life. Bourgeois, yeah. So there's that impact. And I think, um, you know, they want to promote content that is, you know, uh, shows kind of, you know, the simple down-to-earth, maybe practical practical kind of hardworking uh, type of mentality. So the, they'll, they'll have a Red Detachment of Women uh, series coming up. Yeah, <laughs> the, you know the 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 cultural revolution uh, uh, ballet. That's I don't know if everyone would get that reference. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Um, so there are other reasons. I think uh, you know what, another one was that they found that younger people are starting to use the language, like the type of words that are used in these dramas, um, and that's kind of an interesting. You know, how are they determining that? And, you know, are they looking at the way people talk on Weibo and WeChat and, and stuff like that and kind of trying to check the impact? That's That would be kind of interesting. But yeah, and it was, I think it was mainly just trying to downplay kind of this high, high-end luxury sort of life and, and trying to kind of promote, I guess, by demoting this content, they're trying to promote content that is, you know, the opposite of that. Mm. What what strikes me about all this is, I think this this has been written about um, in the South China Morning Post. I, I, I forgot the name of the the writer. Sorry, um, but what this does for their ability to um, expand globally or sell their content globally, you know, if you look at Netflix, you know, their ability, you know, they they produce House of Cards and then they can license House of Cards wherever. Um, it, ITE could potentially be doing a similar thing, but the more that you know, there is a kind of regulatory tightening on their content, the less opportunity they have, or the less incentive they have to produce content that would be both allowed within China and popular outside of China. You know, I don't think um, you know the. The, the more they have to tame down the content, the, the less interesting I think it'll be uh, abroad. So. But I think the joke on, on, uh, on Weibo kind of after this was the, that the, the content they want to promote is more like, um, like those anti-Japanese sort of war videos where like basically someone can just rip a Japanese person in half with their hands or, and like, like stuff like <laughs> that. 
<laughs> like that. But it gets it gets down it gets down to this idea of like the more the more stuff that pushes promotes the Chinese nationalism. Like outside of China, you don't want to like that stuff's not going to sell. You know, it's not a, a like a globally inclusive message. Um, but that's that's obviously a bigger a bigger issue and a, and something that we can't really talk you know cover in full right now. Um, anything else we need to talk about with IG? No, I think I mean their stock has uh, kind of risen a little bit. Um, you know, bottomed out around kind of fifteen, and now it's above twenty, which is kind of nice. Um, but yeah, it's been been rebounding. Yeah. Uh, speaking of speaking of of well performing stocks. Uh, Pinduoduo uh, hit their all-time high um, in late January, uh, eclipsing thirty dollars per share. Um, and yet, the only news that I've been seeing about them are about their. Um, you know, there was that short report that came out oh, you know, a couple months ago, um, and you'll you'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and then also there was that that news about their their kind of their coupon hacking scandal that they had. Um, and no, nothing that's good news. Why does their stock keep going up? Um, even though you know, the, I think they've gone up. They're over thirty dollars, and they were uh, just a couple months ago. They were down what around sixteen, seventeen, or even lower. Um, why is their stock surging so much? Uh, even though they're you know. The, there is no the news does not indicate a reason for it. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I I mean, so back in November, the their largest volume day that they've had, according to my data here, was November fourteenth, and I and that was like a twenty million uh, kind of shares volume uh, for that day. I think that was the same day, around the same time that the the short report came out that was done by Blue Orca. I read. Most of the report, it's you know, it's it very. You learn a lot about Pinduoduo when you read it. Um, you know, it talks about their GMV and how they're there. I think one of their main claims is that GMV was inflated, and that the way they calculate GMV because they don't really have a shopping cart that it's it's higher than other companies. So, if you were trying to value a company based on GMV, which I, I think would be a bad idea. You know, and you're trying to compare these companies based on GMV and make a decision. Uh, you know, Pinduoduo looks better than it actually is. Um, but the report didn't, and maybe you know, maybe I have a problem with my calculation. But when we did our episode six talking about the cash burn rates, uh, I made a calculation for Pinduoduo, and I had uh, basically I took out the payments to merchants or payables to merchants and merchant deposits. Uh, because these to me seem like they're connected somehow to restricted cash or they're they're basically uh cash that they're not gonna be able to use in their regular operations. And like, you know, if you go back to one of the problems OFO was dealing with is they have all these deposits from customers and they were actually using them. Uh and mm-hmm. then, you know, I think the government actually forced them to put that, put those deposits uh, in a in bank accounts that you know that they they could be protected. Um, that's definitely what's been going on with peer to peer lending platforms. So yeah, I just don't. I'm actually. I hope you know maybe maybe an analyst will get on the earnings call for Pinduoduo and ask them about this. But I am curious. But it, so if you take out take this out, what actually looks like they have a 
positive free cash flow. But when you take out these these items I, I, I mentioned, uh, it goes negative. So, you know, having a positive free cash flow that's sort of uh, financed by working capital is a is a very nice thing to have. But when you make these adjustments, that very nice thing to have becomes non-existent. So, <laughs> I, I do wonder, like, you know, I, I would love to hear from our audience, you know, and and I did share this. And I can share it again, but I did share this uh, Excel file I made last time, um, kind of calculating this. I've updated it with the nine months 2018 number, and it, you know, if you don't take out anything for capex and you just take cash from operations, um, they had about 1.2 billion in cash from operations SRMB, and then, but then when you take out the difference between Payments payables to merchants and merchant deposits uh, from the end of last year, that number goes down to negative one point five six billion RMB. So, um, but they do have quite a bit of cash on their balance sheet, so uh, they could probably keep doing this for for at least you know. I mean, as they grow, this number will will grow too. You know, so maybe they got like a five year runway. But anyway, it's mm. it's not it's but not the, the so, beautiful nice. Their, their numbers, from what you're looking at, do seem to be maybe a little bit deceptive because they're when it comes to their positive cash flow, they cannot actually access a lot of that cash. Um, you know, it it actually belongs to to other people. Yeah. So if my assumption is right in classifying uh, payables to merchants and merchant deposits as cash that is not able to be used in their regular operations, then yeah, there's. I mean, this is this is a weird thing. They have a weird business model. You know, accounting uh, has to. You know, like standards change and all these things because business models change and and adapt and grow. And uh, so this is one one new one. You know, I haven't seen this before um, in filing. So there's not really a good uh, kind of idea of what to do here, but. You know, I think in general terms, if if it's if they have cash flow and part of that cash flow is can't be used by the business, I would generally not include that in my free cash flow calculations. Yeah, there is um there's a lot of question marks around Pinduoduo. Like I think that this, that some of those fundamentals are are all right that they have. You know that they're 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 going after the growth kind of the the they're still digitizing areas of the Chinese uh, consumer economy. Um, by going after that lower end, they, they they're kind of trade war proof in some ways or recession proof because they sell some of the lower end products. Um, but like we've talked about, they don't have as strong of a moat, and also we don't. They're not. They don't have a a proven sustainable business model um, the way that some of these other companies do. So you know their 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 bottom is much lower, I think, than uh, than you know your ten cents and your Alibabas and, and your Baidu's for sure. Um, so I think there's a lot of talk about them being a um, a short candidate. Um, at the very least, you know, when they're doing this well, um, you know, they it may be a time for some people to con- consider selling if they've if they've been holding on to that stock. But who knows? I mean, there's we are not the you know the be all and end all when it comes to this stuff. So, anyways, anything anything else you want to say with people with being today? Yeah, I mean, so looking at you know, sometimes it's good to compare companies based on 
you know, price to book and price to sales. And and because Pindua does, doesn't have earnings, we're not going to do price to earnings. But so price to book, Pindua right now, based on the numbers I'm looking at right here, uh, 10.5. Um, and that's compared to uh, Alibaba, which is 6.3, and JD, which is 3.8. You know, so they're mm. kind of similar e-commerce businesses. Uh, price to sales, <laughs> what... What do you think? So, if I tell you Alibaba's, which is eight point four, what do you think Pinduoduo's is? I have no idea. Okay, would you guess over twenty? Sure. Yeah, it's twenty point eight, and that's compared to Jin Jindong, which is uh, actually zero point five. Now, those are different business models. So, comparing mm-hmm. price to sales is very different. You have direct sales versus marketplace. Uh, I would say is more like marketplace, um, so more like Alibaba, but still more than double Alibaba. So in terms of these those valuation kind of comparables, um, yeah, I would say Pinduoduo. Maybe if you've if you bought it kind of in the last couple months, maybe it's time to take uh, take some take some profits. Would be my recommendation. Yeah. But yep. Do this is not investment advice. Not investment um, advice. Not investment advice. No. But I I have made a pretty penny on Pinduoduo, and uh, I'm moving away from it a little bit personally. Um, so, it, 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 but it's, it's been good because uh, you know it's, the markets haven't been great. But you know Pinduoduo, you know if it's one of those things where you know if, if you timed it right, you could do quite well. Um, uh, moving on, you want to go to Alibaba? Yeah. Um, All right. So wait, the uh, so this is they they've had different news reports report different headlines depending on kind of how they want to frame it. Now their their earnings, uh, their revenue uh, growth slowed for a third straight quarter, right? But it still rose forty one percent from a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> so they're still doing okay. And uh, their their stock was up six point three percent the day after uh, you know their, or the day of their their call, and uh, they're 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 growing in a lot of uh, you know the areas where they need to be growing in. Um, so uh, yeah, what what are your takeaways here? Um, okay, so yeah, they're forty one percent. I mean, that's they're killing it. Uh, actually, their CFO said on the call that revenue growth continued to outperform. Almost all global technology peers. So I mean, this this is a, a very amazing company, um, actually. Uh, but you know, you know, they they did talk about Singles Day a little bit. We've talked about that before. Um, they said that they're, and we have talked about this before. Their long, uh, large ticket items like uh, white appliances. Uh, had slower growth, and they kind of blame that on the cooling off of the real estate market. Um, their mobile phones growth also softened in the December quarter, and that, like before, is due to a lack of technology innovation by cell phone makers and uh, companies. And then consumer staples, apparel, and home furnishings are still growing pretty well. But one thing that was kind of interesting is Daniel Zhang uh, called Alibaba like uh, they called he called it the Alibaba operating system, hmm. and he says their operating system is composed of uh, platform businesses. 
and he named basically, you know, retail, marketing, financial, which is and financial, uh, logistics, and cloud computing. So that that was pretty interesting. You know, it's, I mean, platform businesses can be great businesses, and they have they're going after many. I think retail is basically retail and marketing are financing the growth into logistics and cloud computing, right? I think you know there's there are a lot of reasons to be pessimistic or bearish about the Chinese economy in general, but there aren't a lot of reasons to be that pessimistic. There aren't that many reasons to be pessimistic about Alibaba. There are a lot of reasons to to like Alibaba, um, in that it is they are making all the right moves to set themselves up for success in the future. So we could see their e-commerce business slow down, but if you look at where these where where the growth is going to come in the future and where the, those margins are. Um, they are the dominant player in cloud in China, and they are having success at, at, at taking some market share overseas. Um, their revenue from cloud computing businesses increased 84% year on year. Um, and it's going to, we can only anticipate that it will continue to grow. Um, it is way ahead of its Chinese competitor, other Chinese competitors in that area. Um, Aside from maybe, I mean, Huawei, I think is 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 getting into it quite strongly. Um, but uh, you know, Tencent's lagging behind. Um, another area where we've talked about Tencent making some transitions is uh, into this area of the industrial internet, where Alibaba has been for a long time, and you know, does quite well, um, and is continuing to do quite well, um, and they're very well positioned. Uh, and then when it comes to uh, you know, just looking at their organizational culture, I mean, this is something that is you know hard to quantify. But we've you know, we, when we had Matt Brennan on to talk about Tencent, he said one of the biggest challenges that they're going to face is shifting from this kind of horse race internal competition culture to one that is more collaborative. Um, Alibaba is not a horse race culture; they're known for being very collaborative. Um, so you know, they. Well, these these areas where Tencent is is looking at shifting into over the next year or two, Alibaba already dominates. So there there is a lot of reason. There are a lot of reasons to be to be very uh, optimistic about Alibaba. Yeah, I would say. I mean, one of the reasons that we've mentioned before to be kind of maybe a little pessimistic in general on the industry is government kind of. Regula- tightening up regulations, right? Uh, and we kind of talked about that just just now with IGE. But so that was actually they covered that and their view on that in their call, and kind of like they said, you know, and and I kind of I think I kind of agree with this. You know, Alibaba they expect the uh, regulatory environment to change along with the changes that occur in a rapidly growing economy, right? So. You know the kind of the economy is growing so fast, and the new tech kind of part of the economy is growing even faster, and so it's kind of like the the regulations have to catch up uh, constantly, and they will catch up. and And they see, you know, I think their optimism is placed in that they're seeing. Um, they think the government's getting more adept at calibrating, and this is quote calibrating the interplay. Between regulation and economic growth, and trying to pick, you know, different different ways uh, to kind of manage that. And they actually gave some examples, and they basically said the stimulus plan, the new one, is 
an example of that. Whereas privacy, previously, in the, in a, you know, they would just up the credit, you know, loosen up the credit spigots and kind of force people to invest in projects. Now they're, they're saying, okay, we're going to raise the threshold for personal income tax, uh, which should give people more disposable income. Which Alibaba thinks they're going to spend it on consumption. I don't know. Maybe they'll spend it on real estate. Who, who knows? Uh, but there's also lower VAT, um, and that that comes in as an exemption, like a VAT tax exemption uh, for businesses who make less than thirty thousand RMB per month, or they get to pay like a little bit less, you know, a little bit less tax. Uh, if they make under a hundred thousand a month, they also brought the corporate tax rate down. And then for small businesses, that's five percent on the first hundred, uh, the first one million in profits, and ten percent for the next one to three million. So they think that'll drive kind of more business consumption and more uh, personal um, household consumption. I wonder how much of that is actually um, trying to get some stuff that would otherwise be off the books on the books. Uh, what do you mean? Like uh, stuff that would otherwise be gray market, um, uh, yeah. To in order to avoid taxes, um, you know, getting, you know, actually, you know, getting on the books so that um, they, they it can be counted. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. I mean, what, one of the things about the stimulus is like all these things have been announced. I don't think they've. I mean, the intention to do them and implement them has been announced. I don't think they've actually been implemented yet. Um, and I would expect they get implemented in their uh, March um, MPC, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, meeting. And so that wouldn't be until you know one quarter the way through the year. But anyway, it also doesn't seem like they're that impacted by the trade war. Although obviously if things do heat up, I think, uh, and we'll talk about this with Bernard, but it would change the environment in Southeast Asia a bit. Yeah. So anyway, back to their earnings. I think so. Cost of revenues uh, were up ten percentage points to fifty percent. So that was quite a big jump. And they said that's due to the consolidation of Ulama, which I think is their leading loss, uh, a strategic area. And then also increase of inventory and logistics, uh, increase in content spending by Yoku on original content and some impairment charge on licensed copyrights. So Lazada, they also said on the call that they're trying to get them or they're moving them towards a capital light marketplace model uh, and their revenue had slowed down. Revenue growth, I mean, it's still growing, it's just slowing down because they're, they had a decrease in their direct sales business, uh, which they think over the long term is the right direction to go, be more capital light kind of service-based market marketplace model. And so, yeah, the other kind of big, big thing, bigger things are they repurchased shares. Uh, they spent since September 2018, they bought 10.8 million shares and they spent 1.57 billion US dollars buying back their shares. Uh, and oh, wow. Yeah, that's significant. And they still have about 28 billion on their balance sheet, uh, USD. Their free cash flow was, uh, they announced uh, their free cash flow of RMB 51 billion. And they actually made a point to say that they deduct the content spending 
when they calculate free cash flow, even if it was capitalized, which I know we've talked about that before, I think. And that I actually totally agree with. I think content spending should be deducted. They had some questions. They also mentioned that they're they're talking about, you know, you know, Alibaba, all these apps, they all have a feed built in. And the whole point, like you open, you can just open the app and just start scrolling down and it'll start showing you stuff, like a recommendation feed. But they're they haven't monetized it yet. Uh, and so they're trying to, they're experimenting and trying to figure out how to monetize this properly in a way that doesn't, uh, you know, that the users aren't necessarily negatively impact, but the merchants can get a good ROI on their investment on those ads. So that's, you know, that that's pretty interesting. I know that's a really popular thing. You can just kind of, you know, if they know you like XYZ types of goods because you've bought them before, they'll show you that stuff. So like I buy stuff for my wife on Alibaba and I, I think the recommendation engine thinks I'm a girl. So I get, <laughs> I, get <laughs> I get a lot of like it, um, girl stuff. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how to fix that. I mean, but this is this is an area. You know, it's an untapped resource that you know. It doesn't seem like they need to tap it, but it is. Uh, you know, if they need to juice up their 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 revenue numbers, they can. So they um, they they said their revenue numbers were up because of click through paid clicks and click through rates. And they said that was driven by uh, improvement in their search optimization, and I guess also uh, the new UI that they released for for Taobao. Um, and it's you know that's helping. But yeah, this is this is when they do want to. You know, I I do wonder because once once they monetize, once you monetize a feed, it either gets less interesting, or but if you monetize it well, I think Instagram. Probably monetizes their feed pretty well. I think Facebook does not. You know, Instagram. You kind of some people like like to watch the ads in Instagram. You know, they're like interesting. And I think this is another thing that WeChat's obviously dealing with is they monetize their moments, uh, and you see ads in your moments. And like the ones I've seen, I, I mean, they're not annoying. They're like interesting, kind of artistic and cool videos and things. But tasteful. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe WeChat just knows that you're a a, a guy with a, some serious taste, James. <laughs> so, you know, they're only well, sending you what? 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 What do you get? Cavassier ads, you know? Uh, Cavassier, you know, luxury cars. Uh, <laughs> um, um, they also said kind of luxury handbags because they think you're a woman, right? Um, I don't think WeChat. I don't think WeChat thinks that. I haven't bought anything on anyway. There are a lot of people selling jewelry on WeChat, by the way. That's that I have have bought. Oh, wait, the feed the feed is all either like if you if you they, they've talked about um you know there's a lot of talk about about the the WeChat moments feature being you know something that is dying because everything is either you know people are too afraid to, to post things like opinions because. You know, everyone know everyone watches it. Everyone you know their 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 bosses watch it. Um, so people just post like you know stuff to promote their companies or selling you know selling jewelry or um, you know uh, you know photos of their their you know misleading photos of their luxury vacations that make their lives seem better than they really are. Um, <laughs> so which is which is part of what I think is uh, kind of driving the success of some of these short video apps too. Right. Yeah. That's. 
That's a good point. I think that's that's another. I mean, that's one of my problems with Facebook. Is I go on Facebook and it's like, it's interesting. I'll I'll find myself watching it and scrolling through for a long time, but I'm not. I'm not really getting anything added value. It's just a lot of like baby photos and some political rants. Yeah, I I don't I don't go on like I very rarely use. I use Facebook Messenger for like for stuff with family, and I still get I'm on there to see. Um, yeah, it's basically my, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, but even my cousins now it's Instagram, right? It's, it's my, if, if they are over 50 years old, then I use Facebook to contact them, um, <laughs> to stay in touch with them, which is not a good sign for Facebook. But anyways, this is not a Facebook podcast. So, um, anyways, anything else about Alibaba, James? I mean, they, they, the other kind of funny thing they mentioned was, they get a lot of new merchants every year on their platform. And this year, they've been getting a lot of merchants that are live streaming. And they're using their live streaming to, you know, to become KOLs. And then they're also selling goods on Taobao or on Alibaba's platforms. So, yeah, this is, um, this is the new thing. I, I've worked with, um, with Mogul, Mogul's, yeah. But they, this is what they would call, um, like basically it's, um, like C to M commerce, basically. It's a C to M model where they, you'll, you'll watch like an influencer and the influencer will promote a brand, right? Um, then what the people watching the influencer will, uh, you know, click on their, on the product that they're promoting. Uh, and then they will, um, be able to send those orders directly to the manufacturer um, after the live streaming is done or during the live stream, uh, and then they the the manufacturer does not have excess inventory, um, and they just they just make it right on you know made to order basically. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a it's definitely a model that's taking off, and um, it's something that uh, I think you know considering China's very robust both you know it's it's it it. it Benefits three areas. One is is it has a robust kind of manufacturing base, obviously. Uh, two is its live streaming industry, and three is e-commerce. Um, so it basically takes these three strengths um, of the Chinese market and and puts them all together. Anyways, um, anything else? Yeah, um, I could talk about logistics and why I think this is going to be the next big arena. Uh, you see JD going there with JD Logistics. Uh, you see Alibaba there with Tainiao. Uh Logistics itself, as an industry, it has an economy of scale uh, where the larger player benefits. Uh, there's also a nice network economy, um, whereas you build a denser network, you can win because you can create the connections between the nodes in your network. Uh, you can create more efficient pathways to deliver things or distribute goods. So, you know, this is going to be interesting. Um, one of the companies I've owned for a long time is Pepsi, and most people see Pepsi and Coke as beverage companies. But actually, I view them as uh, distribution companies. You know, if someone out there creates a new beverage that gets popular, everyone's drinking it and buying it, uh, Coke and Pepsi can go and acquire it, and they'll be able to pay more because, you know, they can plug it in the product into their distribution network and it's global, like almost immediately. Um, so then they can create much more value from that product mm. than the the original uh, smaller company that started it. 
So, you know, it took Coke and Pepsi a long time to build those distribution networks. Uh, There's probably an upkeep cost to them. You know, if they're not performing well and delivering things on time to their end buyers, um, you know, there's probably suffer. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. probably also specialization in that, you know, they're getting good at moving specific types of goods. Um, But... You know, all that aside, imagine if logistics, you know, as a as like an offering, a business service, kind of gets opened up, um, where a startup company can plug their products into a distribution network built and run by a third party. I mean, it's kind of like cloud computing. You know, Amazon Web Services allowed startups to scale and get very big with variable cost, and not having, you know, they could bypass that. Big, big uh, capital, heavy uh, data center cost, um, but obviously it's different because physical goods are a lot harder to move than uh, electrons. Um, and I also, you know, we don't know yet how the margins will play out in a logistics business. Um, you know, whether this alone will be a cash cow or whether it'll be kind of a complement to their platforms that will drive uh, businesses to them. So it's moving things. Um, so there's potentially not as many follow-on benefits like investment in cloud infrastructure. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, it's certainly an interesting development. But then that also benefits the people that have already built up that infrastructure. And this is why, you know, I mean, we have, when we've talked about JD, you know, we we there's a lot of kind of bearishness that has gone on around them, you know, but we've talked about not being particularly optimistic about it. Um, you know, when we had Ray on to talk about it, uh, Ray Ma on to talk about it, she, she was not particularly optimistic about them, but the people who are the JD bulls, this is what they cite. Um, they say like they've already set up, they have, they have the, 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 uh, logistics infrastructure established far better than just about any other, uh, Chinese company, um, and this gives them, you know, as you know, logistics becomes you know, a you know, like what you, like what you're talking about, you know, kind of you know, yeah, a service exactly um, like what cloud services are. Um, JD is going to be poised to take advantage of that, um, and so you know, if you are bullish on them, this is why. So, anyways, that is that is a, a good thing to look at. Yeah, JD Logistics seems to have the upper hand uh, in that, you know, they had a direct sales focus. They have inventory, warehouses, distribution, last mile, all these things that uh, build on, that they build on and improve over time. While, you know, a marketplace model doesn't have to deal with those kind of more difficult things. You know, the marketplace gets a lighter capital, you know, intensity. Uh, they get more rapid growth, but you know sometimes in business you want to do things that are hard. I think you know Paul Graham says do things that don't scale, um, and then you know over time those things will lead sometimes lead to an advantage. Uh, and I think JD is a good example of that. Yeah, you establish that you know you have a higher higher barrier to entry, and it it makes it hard for anyone to compete with you. Kind of the opposite of a Pinduoduo. You know, Pinduoduo could probably get their, you know, their lunch eaten, you know, any moment now. Same thing with ByteDance, right? You know, you could have, um, you know, uh, 
a Facebook or, you know, an Instagram or, or whoever that, um, you know, goes into the short video area and, um, you know, it's, it's always going to be a threat. So anyways, uh, we should probably, uh, you know, move into our interview with uh, Bernard Leong. Third piece. Uh, but, this is after Elsa's yeah, exactly. time to go. <laughs> anyways, okay, so here's our interview uh, with Analyze Asia's Bernard Leong. Bernard is the host of the Analyze Asia podcast, and he has been paying attention closer than just about anyone else to the uh, internet, uh, tech, and e-commerce ecosystems in China and Southeast Asia over the past couple of years. So Bernard, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background for, for those of our listeners who are, are not familiar with your podcast or with you? Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Bernard Leung. I have a corporate day job as a senior executive in an aviation company running the businesses of drones in Asia Pacific. And uh, disclaimer for today is anything I say is only on my personal opinion. So a lot of people probably will know me through my site project, which is the Analyze Asia podcast. I'm the host of that podcast. We dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia, where Elliot is a guest. <laughs> uh, so that's what we do. So uh, the podcast itself has already gone on for four, four years, coming to five this year. And we have about 30K plus subscribers, 2 million downloads, 40% US audience, 10% China. And the rest of it is split between Asia Pack. So I usually uh, interview people. I like to not do the news of the week, but I like to do a lot more analysis, deeper thinking about what is happening. And one of the interesting topics we're going to talk about today is the uh, Alibaba and Tencent access in Southeast Asia. And mm -hmm. of course, now there is this whole idea of Chu Hai, mm -hmm. uh, uh, coined by Hans Tong from GGV Capital. And in my current engagements, I've actually been seeing a lot of Chinese money flowing into Southeast Asia and India. Yeah. So we can talk about that later. Well. That's kind of the uh, you know you you go out, you go out to to lunch or dinner or drinks with uh, with anybody um, you know who's, who's involved in the you know the China tech ecosystem um, and you know Southeast Asia and India are the big buzzwords right that's where a lot of that growth is happening um, and and you've been following it for longer than just about anyone else so when we look at um so at, at particularly at Southeast Asia we could talk a little bit about India as well um, but who are the major players in the Southeast Asia e-commerce ecosystem um, and where does do these are are our recognizable names from China intersecting with either some of our local players or some of the players for from example the US mm. so I probably would just tell you first um, there are a couple of major players through e-commerce and who are they backed by so then you can start seeing the linkages between the Southeast Asia champions um, and how the China tech companies are actually influencing them. So probably the most well-known is Lazada. Lazada is a Southeast Asia uh, e-commerce company. They're very similar to Amazon, originally started by the, the Samuel Brothers of Rocket Internet. And they were done in a fire sale in 2000, 2014, uh, sold to Alibaba Group at 1.5 billion. Um, at that point, they only acquired about 75%, but recently they have done a full acquisition. Uh, leaving 10% that's owned by Tamasic. Now, the word Tamasic is going to be very important when I start telling you what's the impact in this, uh, how do you follow what they are doing in the market. And then they have also... Okay, so can, can you, for, for our listeners, mm -hmm. can you give them, if they're not, they're not familiar with uh, Tamasic, uh, how, should they, so, how should they know? Uh, okay. Give us a brief introduction. So Tamasic is a sovereign wealth fund owned by Singapore. They have probably investments in every top internet company in the world. They have Tencent, they have mm -hmm. Alibaba, they have Uber through uh, their subsidiary Vertex mm. Ventures. We work as well. Uh, they are everywhere. 
And they are very well known because they are one of the early investors of the China first wave of internet companies in China. In fact, second, third wave as well. So don't be surprised that Tomasic goes onto everybody's, um, when they declare public, they will have some holdings in some of these companies, whether it's through them, through their funds as well. They are, I think, LPs of all the major tech funds in Silicon Valley and also China as well. So uh, that uh, Lazada itself have acquired Redmart, which is actually a groceries uh, company. Uh, that's only focused on Singapore. So they have brought in the founders of Redmart to do something very similar to Amazon Fresh. Now, uh, there's another one that's similar to Redmart called HelloFresh. They do everywhere except Singapore. So mm. this is going to be very interesting to your audience is that e-commerce have two parts. Uh, Singapore and first tier cities in each of the Southeast Asia countries and the rest, which is developing. So uh, it's very similar to China, what you call the third tier, fourth tier city onwards and the first and the second tier city. So we need to separate them. Uh, the second company, uh, you e-commerce player that you might probably want to know, and they're growing very big now. In fact, they, it has been reported recently that their mobile e-commerce numbers are starting to challenge Lazada and having one third of the market in Indonesia is Shopee. Now, Shopee is owned by the C group or what formerly people known as Garena. Now, Garena is called the Tencent of Southeast Asia. Guess what? Who are they backed by? Tencent. <laughs> so, so you probably would know uh, that they actually have most of the major, they, uh, uh, the C group itself actually have uh, the Garena, which actually run most of the Tencent uh, game titles, like Honor of Kings in Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, called Arena Valor. So they are actually very influential. They went uh, IPO last year in New York Stock Exchange. So, uh, Shopee is their e-commerce ventures and they have been aggressively, if you look at YouTube YouTube videos, they're aggressively advertising there as well. And they have deals during singles day as well. Then there is Carousel. It's probably like the like an equivalent to a bit, I think, of ByteDance. Like you, there's not uh, influenced by neither Alibaba nor Tencent. It's a mobile e-commerce company, very similar to eBay, but it's all on mobile, mobile first. Um, they were backed by Golden Gate Ventures, and I think one of the investors that you should know is Rakuten Ventures. And probably everybody know Rakuten is the Japanese top e-commerce platform. So there are some Japanese players here as well. Uh, of course, the two big ones that are coming up this year in Indonesia, where, okay, so Indonesia constitutes about 272 million population for the whole Southeast Asia, which is about uh, 600 million, but they're the largest market, next biggest after China and India. So these two companies you will hear a lot. One is Tokopedia, which recently did a big run with SoftBank, uh, getting their unicorn status, and Bukalapat, which is actually a more enterprise version, I call it trading uh, place for B2B businesses, uh, similar to the early days of Alibaba.com. These two companies are actually reaching their unicorn status. They probably have money from Sequoia, Southeast Asia, or which actually comes from India. And they have also a lot of the major key investors, VCs involved. And these two companies are breaking out this year. So this year is actually a very exciting year for e-commerce. And one last major player, which I think people are not thinking about, and it's actually happening because I have some uh, knowledge about what they have been doing, is Jingdong, JD. Uh, JD Indonesia and JD Thailand are doing extremely well in the second and third tier cities. In fact, uh, JD Indonesia has recently, because I'm in the drone business, they've done their first drone delivery in Jakarta uh, to showcase their the drone capability. And I'm very, I know the their uh, Chinese team. Uh, they have been 
they've done a lot of very good, interesting drone delivery tech in, in China as well. And now they're exporting that tech into Southeast Asia. So I think these are probably the key players that you would, you would encounter. And they have different backers as well. Now, if you look at Tokopedia, it's backed by SoftBank, right? Guess mm. who Soft? They usually co-invest with someone else. So it's usually co-invest with who? Alibaba. So, <laughs> so that's how you need to start looking at them from, from how they're expanding into Southeast Asia. So, so really it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's, it's proxy wars. Um, from China yep, into Southeast right. Asia, right? So when we look at, with, with all of these companies, they're going to have a different brand name, but when you look at the money behind it, a lot of it is the same investment banks or the same uh, VC funds. This, you know, it's, it's, it's Alibaba, it's Tencent. Um, so, you know, you, you see Shopee, Shopee is backed by C, C is backed by Tencent, right? Lazada is owned by Alibaba. Um, took, uh, you know, Gojek, right, is backed by, uh, Meituan, who's backed Tencent. by Tencent, right? Yeah, so, so there's, um, you know, the names are different, but the, the sources of the, of the money behind them, um, are, uh, are, are very familiar. Um, so James, do you, you want to chime in here? Do you have any questions? I guess what are, what are sort of the major obstacles? And I guess, um, for the company that, uh, I guess Lazada, right? That Alibaba acquired. Um, and maybe, maybe, uh, this is kind of too much, but like, what were, what were the problems they were experiencing in 2014? And are there still, like, what are the I- issues and obstacles, um, for these e-commerce companies in, uh, Southeast mm-hmm. Asia? So I think major obstacles for uh, what I call Chinese outbound tech expansion in Southeast Asia. So I think the first goes with trust issues. So um, I probably think that recently, you know, the Battle Road Initiative. So there's a lot of deals between uh, Southeast Asia governments, Thailand, Malaysia. Uh, most of the money is routing through Singapore and uh, of course, Indonesia as well. So that, that forms the, uh, the, the, the road and the belt. And a lot of it is that um, there's is taking a lot of sovereign debts in these countries, and now there's been a pushback going on, as well. But what what most what has happened as well is that most of the Southeast Asia com- uh, countries that used to be at loggerheads with China on the control of South China China Sea has all decided that okay, we don't want to get involved in this dispute, and they're basically becoming more pro China as of pro-US before 2016. So 2016 is the turning point of the relationship as, as that. Um, one, the other major obstacle is the go-to-market strategy by Chinese companies. Um, it's very centered towards the Chinese consumers in this market, mainland, Ch- mainland Chinese consumers in this market, and also the Chinese tourists who comes to this region. So you probably wouldn't know this, but uh, Chinese is one of the largest tourist groups now, not just in Singapore, but in Malaysia and Thailand and some parts of Indonesia like Bali as well. So the go-to market seems to be still very tailored towards the Chinese. They haven't made any real attempts of doing localization and they have a lot of challenges, I think, in terms of localizations, particularly in payments where they have uh, clearing gateways, payment infrastructure, fraud detections. Uh, They actually built on a lot of Western payment infrastructure. And they usually have a local champion. For example, in Singapore, there is something called Nets that aggregates all this payment to do the clearing. So whether you're Alipay or, or WeChat Pay, you still need to go through Nets. In Indonesia, there's the equivalent of that. And then in, in Malaysia, you have the equivalent of that. So, so that's, that's where the challenges for payments. Of course, there are regulations for remittances. For example, 
if you want to do things like uh, sending money between countries, it's not so straightforward as what you have experienced in China. You know, one click with uh, WeChat, you can get it done. I think the other thing that I think is underappreciated is the challenges of distribution. So a lot of the Southeast Asia population are actually uh, foreign workers. Uh, I would call them uh, blue-collar workers uh, working as helpers. Working, They need to do remission of money. Uh, and they usually go through Western Union and MoneyGram. That's why Alibaba tried to acquire MoneyGram and failed in the US. And this has implications because they have a lot of big distribution centers. And I think what these Chinese tech companies are beginning to realize is that distribution centers are becoming very important to them. So, but they are mostly owned by the US. So there's this uh, uh, tussle, I would say, in Southeast Asia between both of them. And of course, the last is that local champions fighting against uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay, for example, DBS in Singapore has been doing a very good job with their Digibank. They are number one in the world. In fact, uh, JP Morgan from US have just taken their head of digital mm. to be heading the digital transformation for US. So mm. this is not, yeah, this is something that's really big. And um, the last bit, I think, in terms of obstacle is that Southeast Asia has actually been very favorable to US tech. If I were to give you the history of Facebook, in between 2008 to 2012, if you look at their, major, uh, their daily active user traffic, the largest traffic is actually from Indonesia and Philippines mm. after the US market. Mm. So it has been traditionally very favorable to uh, US technology companies. It's very strange because I always find it a contradiction. Like the US companies like to tell everybody like eBay, Google, China, 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 right? Then... All the other, the favorable use where they encounter the least resistance, where they should have invested is actually Southeast Asia, but they do nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. I heard somewhere that like Facebook didn't have an office actually in Indonesia for a really, really long time. Yes, and they right. might not, not have one now. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but. No, they have, they have, they have some people working in Indonesia, but they still report to the headquarters in Singapore. So Singapore has actually had all the regional HQs of every US tech company. So Amazon's uh, Amazon Web Services uh, data center runs through Singapore. Uh, they're going to build data centers in Malaysia and Indonesia at some point, and uh, Google as well. And the the problem is that is is similar, right? You are trying to run a Chinese operation from US is the same as you're trying to run Indonesia's Malaysia operation through Singapore. So it's the same type of uh, jurisdiction questions that needs to be addressed. And I think the US. The companies have been very comfortable that they were unchallenged until two years ago. And a lot of, and things have started to shift. Today, I, when I talk to startup companies, they it used to be like, I want to be the Amazon or Southeast Asia, the Google or Southeast Asia or the Facebook or Southeast Asia. We don't hear that anymore. I, what I've been hearing these days is I want to be the Meituan Tianping of Southeast Asia. I want to be the Bike Dance of Southeast Asia. I want to be the Tencent of Southeast Asia. So that big shift has also changed the way how People are thinking, and you are seeing Southeast Asia founders traveling to Guangzhou, Shenzhen to meet people to understand the tech, and you are starting to see copies of those kind of tech into the Southeast Asia ecosystem, which I think is the right strategy mm. as compared to trying to copy what's from Silicon Valley into yeah. uh, Southeast Asia. Yeah, that, that, that's what I've noticed. I mean, that we, we're looking at at a number of different trends here. So one is that um, a lot of the infrastructure, like you said, and a lot of kind of the the first mover advantage really belongs to a lot of these Silicon Valley companies, right? So when, you know, like you mentioned, the uh, kind of the, the, the payment systems, the, um, the logistics systems, um, and a lot of the platforms that, that, you know, 
most of the users in Southeast Asia are on are already Silicon Valley platforms, right? Like, you know, I, I live in Bangkok. When I ride the BTS and I look at the apps that people are using, it's Facebook, it's Instagram. Um, and, you know, we, we, I do see Shopee and Lazada are very popular here. But I, we do see that, you know, I think it's fair to say that the Chinese, uh, the Chinese companies are coming here more aggressively. That's for sure. Um, and they're putting more effort in, um, but they're fighting an uphill battle, at least at the current moment. Um, however, um, they are geographically closer. They're the they have more experience probably with um, the Chinese consumer that I think is is culturally a little more aligned with uh, or the Southeast Asian consumer, which is often culturally more aligned with the Chinese consumer, and also. Um, has a similar consumer profile, meaning uh, they make a similar income. They probably live in, um, you know, in in at least they they don't have the same kind of. Um, uh, they're they're not working with a they're not in a, in a in a developed country the way that you know these consumers are in the U.S. So they don't have the same kind of you know highways and infrastructure uh, and brick and mortar retail that they're comparing with competing with in the same way. Um, so they each have their own sets of advantages. But the question that I'm asking here is, and what I'm always wondering is, where are the, the U.S. companies? Why are they so slow to, to really be paying attention to the, this market that, you know, right now, um, I, I read a Tomasek and, and Google report that said that right now the internet economy, if you look at, um, you know, that's e-commerce, social media, streaming video or streaming content, and and mobility or no mobile payments and mobility if you put those together that's a 50 50 billion dollar a year industry um in southeast asia by 2025 it should be about 200 billion dollars right so you see that that there's there's this tremendous growth potential the chinese players are getting at it where are the us players they're already here you know they already are have, have a foothold but they're not really paying attention to it um are are you seeing that 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 Facebook and Google are starting to pay more attention here that are starting to act more aggressively are you seeing Amazon getting in um and and, and competing with the Lazadas and the Shoppies um or are they just uh or, or are they consider, continuing to to kind of um you know neglect this area I I don't think they're neglecting the area I think Google is the only only few companies that really realize the threat. I think the investment in Gojek have sort of told me that Google is also learning from the Chinese companies. Mm. Instead of trying to beat them by creating your own app to take on the local apps, they invested in the local app. They invested in Gojek. Mm. They did the same in India, but they built their own app. Um, in fact, the person who's running this initiative, uh, Caesar Sengupta, who heads up the Next Billion Initiative from Google, is a friend of, very close friend of mine. And uh, he used to report to Sudha Pichai direct when he was on the Chrome division. So um, they are very serious about the market. And I think at least from Google's point of view. Facebook is probably having a lot of problems because of the recent, all these scandals that have been going on. In fact, I when I talk to people in Facebook these days, they are like, oh, I have to meet the government because mm. they, they're having a lot of hearings, etc., etc. going on. Amazon is interesting. Amazon's uh, current operation playbook is the same, uh, whether it's in India and in Southeast Asia, they build up from scratch from their own. And because of the less reliance on the local partners, it becomes a problem for them. Um, I probably can tell you why they were having so much problem with Amazon Prime in Singapore because Alibaba invested in the former company I work with, Singpost, mm. uh, uh, which 
is actually doing the regional logistics for uh, Alibaba Group, for the region. And actually, there is no data transfer between both companies, but Amazon thinks that there is a Chinese war between Singapore's and Alibaba. So I was laughing at it because it's almost like they have blocked themselves without realizing that there was actually no knowledge of that. Their data is their data and, and Singapore is actually doing, uh, working for every customer as per our digital infrastructure is separate from the Alibaba infrastructure. Okay. So, so you see, you see things like this kind of integration, even if you think, oh, because he's investor is so and so, I can't trust him. Mm. So you're seeing these kind of Amazon type of belief that they don't want to work with the local side. It, that, that makes it very difficult for, for the US companies to operate. I think uh, strategy-wise, I think the Chinese companies, um, in terms of what they have built in China, is actually much more suitable for a Southeast Asian market. Mm. And I've been banging this drum since 2008 and nobody seems to believe, but I think the time has come mm. on, on, on that. Because I think that the way how they build the payment systems is very, very easily portable. I think they just need to get do some form of technology licensing transfer into the local payment systems because it's so much cheaper than what they are paying the American uh, infrastructure for payment systems. So that itself may change, but of course, it also depends on a lot of what's happening with the current US-China trade war as well. Mm. Uh, if some uh, Asian countries are forced to take sides, then it becomes a problem for everybody. You know, one of the things uh, I remember, so China, like with their e-commerce and especially with their logistics and their delivery, it seems to be, you know, they have like these little scooters and they can deliver to, you know, they can go into the hutongs really easily. They can get around and, and you can basically, you know, they have these little centers set up where they, they meet, they collect the packages and their specific people own a specific area, right? And they, they have their uh, three wheelers with a big box on the back and they can deliver all your packages and they, you know, they can get stuff to you so quickly. Um, is that something, I mean, for example, of how quick, quick it can be, you can order something on JD uh, in the morning and then you can get it that afternoon. And it's just like so convenient and amazing. And I'd rather, sometimes I'd rather pay like a little bit more on JD, get it the, that day instead of wait like three, four days and maybe get it from Taobao. Um, are they are they doing the same kind of thing in Southeast Asia? I feel like there's you know similar kind of road quality, density of population issues uh, that can maybe have that can help out there. Yeah, I I, th- I think how I can help you to think about this is to think in terms of the strategy how the Chinese tech companies have been doing that is correct against the U.S. tech companies. I think we we talk a lot about what the U.S. tech companies got wrong, right? And we didn't talk about what the Chinese companies got right. So I think the first thing is the buy versus build question. I think Alibaba is very interesting that they have only invested and acquired local champions. So uh, when I was in the executive leadership team of Singapore Post, we pulled off a 282 million US dollar investment from Alibaba into Singapore. And the reason why this is important is because we owned an outbound e-commerce company in Shenzhen that does the outbound traffic for Ali out into Asia Pacific. That is basically a very important lot flow. And Amazon didn't know that, that a post, unlike the US postal service, which is really not as good, is actually a public listed company and is able to do that kind of flow, that kind of logistics flow. So I think that's the first thing, investing in the local champions. And I think they have a very good relationship with the local conglomerates that actually own the warehouses, the retail that you're talking about. 
And I think the distribution center approach they have done is instead of trying to build it their own and piss off the local guys, they actually say, why don't we give you this technology, be our partner and the conglomerates own because they own most of the infrastructure. And then at the same time, they can increase their distribution flow. So I think in logistics, I think Alibaba and Tencent have done a very, uh, they have a very clear way of how they do the buy versus build, which I think the US companies are not doing. I think one interesting thing that I think is pretty interesting is um, where Alibaba and Tencent put their headquarters. So uh, Alibaba's HQ for Southeast Asia is in Singapore. The financial capital, it's where all the VCs are, where all the money is, no problems. Tencent is probably the most interesting case I've seen. And I'm actually very interested to know whether their thesis will work eventually because it's the first time they have done it. They put their HQ in Indonesia, in Jakarta, where the customer is. And and this sets up a very interesting narrative to how they actually approach the markets. I think Tencent is a bit more frugal because I think even you set up in Singapore, there's a lot of, it's almost behaving like a US company for, from the viewpoint of Alibaba, right? Alibaba is just doing what the US company playbook is, set up the regional headquarters in Singapore and direct command and control from there. Whereas Tencent said, we'll go to the markets that matter. The, the markets that our technologies will work is Indonesia, the largest market. The second largest market is actually um, Thailand. So that's very important. I think the other thing that you probably need to see the strategy is also follow the money. So it's very easy. I'll just help you to group, help your, uh, your audience to group it. Alibaba, SoftBank, and Tamasic Access. Look at what they co-invest together. You know what they're doing. If you want to follow Tencent, you follow a company called Nespers, which is a South African uh, conglomerate. But uh, just for you to know, uh, Nespers shares in Tencent is now 137% of their market cap. So, oops. <laughs> yeah. And they. Oh, it has, it's all, it's always traded, uh, kind of below. Yeah, that's right. What, uh, they're holding in Tencent is. It's, it's, yeah. yeah it, persistent. But, uh, the Nespers team that does the investments for Tencent, they are actually all from Southeast Asia. In fact, they used to base in Singapore. I know the old gentleman who ran that deal for, for Nespers under their subsidiary called the WH Group. So when people hear WH Group, they didn't realize it was Nespers. And then you start seeing the building up. So where I think the Chinese companies realize is that there are some places where the first tier cities, because of the conglomerates, they have very well built distribution centers, so we can partner. But what about the second third tier cities that actually have no infrastructure? Now, this is where they start to build their own logistics centers. That is where they're actually putting in the resources to do that. Um, and I think that's even interesting to see how they gang up against the US company. So, you know, Amazon had Amazon Prime in Singapore, right? So uh, there is this thing called LiftUp. Uh, used to be Netflix, Uber, Lazada, Redmart together. Uber is gone now because uh, it got acquired by Grab in Southeast Asia. And they are trying to put up an alternative product. But it's an alliance between US companies who hated each other. And at the same time, so the Chinese companies don't seem to have like, oh, it has to be a Chinese company that I ally with. I partner with the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> kind of strategy. Uh, yeah, they are very practical about how they're doing. It's very, I, uh, I think very this, Sangwa. Like, it's, it's, yeah, it's like three yeah, kingdoms. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'll be like wondering, right? Why Netflix and Alibaba suddenly gone into doing a prime service together in Singapore? You, you see that they have been very pragmatic in terms of how they approach. Mm-hmm. And I think that these strategies have benefited them very well. And I think that this is what people don't realize what they're actually doing in the market. Mm. 
And it takes time to build because uh, Southeast Asia, in, in terms of infrastructure, I mean, first tier cities, no problem. If you go to Jakarta, you go to uh, Bangkok, Singapore, not Kuala Lumpur, not an issue. But when once you start moving out of those places, going into like Surabaya or, you know, um, in Malaysia probably will be somewhere like Kelantan. These are all like second tier areas. Then you start to start seeing, uh, even Bangkok will be Chiang Mai mm. region. So, so you start to see these much more interesting innovation that's going on, but it's slowly moving up because I think what the Chinese e-commerce companies have identified is the opportunity is not the first tier cities, it's the second, third tier cities. And we're just going to round up the local guys by taking out the markets that they have not been traditionally targeting. Mm. Well, we we don't want to have you, uh, you know, take all of your time here. Um, we, we've already had you on for almost a half hour here, and we could talk for forever. Um, I know, we, you know, we haven't even gotten into to cloud services. I think we'll have to save that for another time. But one last question that I want to ask you is that you you basically mentioned, you know, you have Lazada and, and Alibaba, um, you know, and SoftBank and kind of that whole involvement there. You have, um, you know, Tencent behind uh, C and Shopee and um, you know, you have these, these, these proxy wars. Um, you have JD involved as well. Um, how is the market segmented right now? And who are you most bullish on over the next five years or so? Who is going to take this pie? If you ask me today, in terms of execution, in terms of how they approach the market, I have always been a fan of Tencent. I think that whenever they are determined to execute okay. on something, they get it done and they get it done right. The fact that they are willing to bypass Singapore and set their HQ in Indonesia tells me that they are really focusing on trying to conquer the market and less of trying to have the vanity exercise of where they are. Uh, that does not mean that the Alibaba approach is correct. I mean, Alibaba is operating like a multinational by having its... Uh, it's, it's very federated in the way how it approaches alliances. They have been very deliberative. Um, I talk to people from their cloud teams here. I, I like them, by the way. They they are very fast. They they move like like speeds, even doing logistics with them. So I think that they what they have to deal with at some point is how do they penetrate into the second third tier markets. I don't see Lazada doing that much as compared to how JD is approaching it. I think JD is very clear that they want to, if for places that they cannot access like the second third tier cities in Indonesia, they are going to fly drones around it because there's a lot of um, land and etc. So mm. I think there is a clearer view of execution. Uh, what what would go wrong, right? I think for Tencent, what would go wrong is because um, Indonesia's infrastructure is still in the midst of building. They don't have very, uh, in terms of cost of doing business, is extremely difficult. As compared to Singapore, which is like, like they're one of the best places to do business because of IP protection and all that. So that is the, the their risk is slightly different. It's a regulatory risk, less of what I call um, execution risk. So that's where I see both of them is. And I'm very curious because I haven't heard a lot from what Amazon is doing. I think it's, it's going to be very important to watch how Amazon is doing it. They are not just going to do it in Singapore and that's it. They're, I think they're looking into how to expand that logistics flow into Malaysia, Indonesia, and then how they would do that. So, But it would be insignificant as compared to what they have been doing in India. Basically, uh, Amazon Southeast Asia is run by Amazon India. And the reason why how Amazon India could literally mm. crush Flipkart in, in India is because the guy who is the CEO of Amazon India used to be the chief of staff to or shadow 
under Jeff Bezos. So when he wants resources, it's easy. Uh, so you see, these are the things that you need to know. Uh, why the people who are actually playing these fights, uh, who do they send to actually fight the war? That's very, very important. Yeah, and right. the same with what Alibaba did. Tencent has not sent their top executive down to Southeast Asia, but Alibaba has. They sent Lucy Peng to, to run it for 11 months, pick the right guys, yeah. and now run again. So you, you need to see whose intent is stronger mm. in trying to win the market. I, I, I see Ali's uh, intent of winning the market, but mm. I don't know their execution may work or not work. But I see Tencent's execution is really in... I can see mm. like... you. I think you're in Thailand and you're having... I, when I was at higher Hotel, you can pay by WeChat Pay. So... Or Alipay as well. So I, I, I have complaints about this because, because since I don't have a Chinese Shenzhen Zhang, I can't actually pay using WeChat Pay, even if I have money on WeChat. Anyways, that's a whole, yeah, whole yeah. other thing. But Bernard, we could talk to you for forever, but uh, we don't want to be taking you for too long. We, we, we got to have you back on the show. Uh, but Bernard Leung, uh, thank you so much for joining us. How can uh, our listeners follow you or contact you or, 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 get in, or you know, keep, it, keep in touch with what you're doing? Follow me on uh, Twitter at Bernard Leung. And if you want to find my podcast, Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. Okay, Bernard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that just about does it for us today. Thanks again to Bernard Leung for joining us. Uh, make sure that uh, you go to techno.com slash newsletters for your daily dose of China tech. Uh, and also rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Five stars, please. Five stars only. Um, if, if you have... If you don't think we're worth five stars, you can send us a tweet at, uh, that's Elliot Zagman, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N, uh, or at James Hall X, that's J-A-M-E-S-H-U-L-L-X. Uh, James, what are you looking forward to, uh, this coming week? If any of our listeners have any comments about Pinduoduo and my what I've said today, I'm also happy to share the Excel file that I made with anyone. So tweet at me for that. Um, the big thing is what's going to happen with the trade war. It looks like the talks uh, came out pretty good. Um, you know, we'll see. Uh, and also Chinese New Year is kicking off. So I'll say to all of our listeners, Gong Shi Fa Cai. Yeah. Um... So for for me, um, I think that you know we're going to be taking off uh, this next week for the Chinese New Year holiday for Spring Festival. Um, but what uh, what I'm going to be looking at, you know, when I'm checking my phone, is uh, you know there's going to be a lot of earnings, not necessarily from Chinese companies, but a lot of earnings reports from uh, from American companies in particular who do business in China. We're going to see um, you know what they're saying and and how they're um, you know. Uh, how the the trade war and the slowdown in the Chinese economy is impacting their numbers. So I'm going to be paying attention uh, to that. Um, but anyways, yes, like I said before, uh, we're going to be taking off next week for uh, the Spring Festival holiday. So uh, yeah, enjoy your time. Eat some uh, some jiaozi and gongxi uh, fa uh, from the China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>